This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. And all of our history work is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, by the way. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their terrific and free online courses. And our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages over on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard here at Our American Stories. In this next story, the History Guy remembers the 16th president's son, Robert Todd Lincoln. Because of his father, Abraham Lincoln, Robert Todd's life has been largely forgotten. Here's the History Guy. On April 9, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia to Union General Ulysses S. Grant following the defeat of the Confederate Army at the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse. The surrender documents were actually signed in the parlor of a home owned by a man named William McLean, and they were witnessed by both Grant and Lee's staff. The last survivor among those witnesses lived all the way until 1926, and by coincidence was a very famous person, one of the most important statesmen of his day. Robert Todd Lincoln was Abraham Lincoln's firstborn son and the only one of Abraham Lincoln's children to survive to adulthood. His younger brother Edward died of a fever at just the age of three. Robert grew up at a time when his father was practicing law on a circuit and thus was traveling, gone most of the time, and so their relationship was distant, not very close. Robert once noted that his most vivid memories of his father growing up was Abraham packing his saddlebags. By the time that Robert's father was elected president, Robert was attending Harvard University. He described his father as being so busy that they scarcely had 10 minutes quiet time together during his entire presidency. Robert graduated Harvard in 1864 and briefly attended law school there, but he felt compelled to join the Union Army and share the risk that everybody else was taking. At first his mother resisted. His little brother Willie had died in the White House of a fever in 1862, and his mother, Mary Todd Lincoln, feared that she could not withstand another loss. But Robert eventually prevailed, and his father asked General Grant if Robert could be assigned to his staff. Robert was made an assistant adjutant and given the rank of captain, and that is why he was present to witness Lee's surrender. Robert had traveled to Washington to visit his parents on April 15th, and his parents invited him to go to the theater with them, but he declined. He had been traveling on horseback all day and needed a rest, and so Robert narrowly missed his father's assassination. Robert moved with his mother and his younger brother, Tad, to Chicago, and he continued his law studies. He was admitted to the bar in 1867. In 1868, he married the daughter of a United States senator. They had three children. In 1876, Robert was elected town supervisor of the town of South Chicago, a town that was eventually absorbed into the city of Chicago. That was his only elected office of his career. In 1877, he was offered the position of Assistant Secretary of State by President Rutherford B. Hayes, but he declined, although he remained active in Republican politics. And then in 1881, he accepted a cabinet appointment as Secretary of War in the new cabinet of President James Garfield. He was with Garfield in the train station in July of 1881 and witnessed Garfield's assassination. Robert continued to serve as Secretary of War in the cabinet of President Chester A. Arthur, where he was involved in many military reforms. He left the position in 1885. 
And then in 1889, he was appointed to the important position of Minister to the United Kingdom under President Benjamin Harrison, where he served for four years. When he returned to the United States, he became general counsel of the Pullman Palace Car Company, the world-famous maker of railway cars. And when the founder, George Pullman, died in 1897, Robert was made president of the Pullman Car Company. He served in that position until 1911 when he left due to ill health, but he stayed on as chairman of the board clear until 1922. Despite his very accomplished life, Robert Todd Lincoln is often remembered for three things. The first was a coincidence. Somewhere in 1863 or 1864, Robert Todd Lincoln was riding a train from New York City to Washington, D.C., and while in Jersey City, New Jersey, he was bumped off a train platform, landing in the dangerous spot between the platform and the train. A stranger reached down and pulled him out, and when Robert looked up, he realized that his savior was the most famous actor of the day, a man named Edwin Booth. Only later did Edwin Booth find out that the young man that he had saved was President Lincoln's son, and that is said to have offered Edwin Booth some solace, as he was personally devastated when his younger brother, John Wilkes Booth, murdered President Lincoln. Second, in 1875, Robert had his mother, Mary Todd Lincoln, committed to an asylum. He was concerned about erratic behavior after the death of his younger brother, Tad, at the age of 18. Mary was able to get some letters out to her attorney, who was able to convince Robert to let her leave the asylum and live with her sister, but it included some public embarrassment for Robert, and he and his mother never fully reconciled. And finally, Robert Tom Lincoln is sometimes described as being somewhat unlucky because of his proximity to three presidential assassinations. He just missed his father's assassination, he was there when James A. Garfield was assassinated, and he was just getting off a train going to visit President William McKinley when McKinley was shot in 1901. It is tragic that a man who lived such an accomplished life is remembered for coincidences. He was there for three presidential assassinations because he was proximate to power during a tumultuous time. But Robert Todd Lincoln lived an extraordinary life. He was born poor and yet found great success and died very wealthy. He was an elder statesman. He was a leader in his party who was suggested as a candidate for president or vice president many times but always declined. He was the president of one of the largest corporations in the country. He was, frankly, one of the most accomplished men of his era. His last public appearance was May 30th of 1922, when he appeared with President Warren G. Harding and former President and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William Howard Taft, at the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. He passed away in 1926, just a few days shy of his 83rd birthday. He was the last surviving member of the Garfield and Arthur administrations and the last surviving witness to Lee's surrender. Robert Todd Lincoln lived an amazing, extraordinary, accomplished life during one of the most dynamic periods in American history. And darn it, he deserves to be remembered as more than just his father's son. And those words are true and spoken beautifully by the history guy. By the way, if you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy, colon, History Deserves to be Remembered. This is Robert Todd Lincoln's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories that touch on every part of American life. And one theme that cuts across many of our stories is the theme of innovation. And today we're joined by Tim Harford, author of a great book titled 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And we're going to dig into just a few more of those inventions. And by the way, we've done a bunch of segments with Tim. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and catch them all. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And Tim, today, let's start with something near and dear to us here in Mississippi, and that's air conditioning. My dad used to tell me that everyone he knew went to the movie theaters for one reason only. It wasn't whether the movie was any good or the cartoons. There was air conditioning. Talk about yeah, it. this is why we have summer blockbusters. Uh, absolutely. It's just a place to go where it's cool and the, in the heat of the sun. So air conditioning is, is a fascinating invention. There's um, a wonderful writer, Stephen Johnson, who argued that air conditioning elected Ronald Reagan. And you think, well, how does, how does that work? <laughs> well, air conditioning changed the demographics of the United States. It enabled many more people to live comfortably in Texas, in Florida, all those people retiring to Florida and then starting to vote Republican. So it's changing the political landscape of the United States. And in fact, it's, it's changing the, um, the shape of the world, really, for, for similar reasons. So you, you think about these uh, amazing new cities that are, have in the last few decades been growing uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, uh, it, it, Dubai. Uh, you go to these places, there is no way you can build a glass walled skyscraper in Singapore or Dubai without air conditioning. It's completely impossible. There's no way that technology. Uh, will work without air conditioning. So it makes possible skyscrapers in warm climates. It make, makes a lot of things possible that, that we take for granted. Indeed. The other thing, it's a companion almost to air conditioning, not the same, but I'm skipping ahead to chapter 22, and it's the elevator. I want to read something quickly. We don't tend to think of elevators as mass transportation systems, but they are. They move hundreds of millions of people every day, and China alone is installing 700,000 elevators a year. How did elevators change the world? Well, let me just justify that statement about mass transit. Just imagine a, a building such as the, the Sears Tower in Chicago. <clears throat> I guess we call it the Willis Tower now, don't we? Or the Empire State Building in New York. Um, think about all those floors. These are roughly 80, 100 stories. Think of all those stories, and now let's just chop them into single-story or two-story buildings, and we and distribute those buildings all over a big office park, an sort of out-of-town office park, and think of all the um, all the car parks you need to have around them, and think of the enormous amount of space that that office park would take up. Now, because they're all stacked on top of each other. Um, you don't need the car parking. You don't need people driving their automobiles uh, to get to this space. You just go in on the ground floor, get in the elevator, and you can be taken to any floor in the building. So that, that's why I say it's a mass transit system. I think it, that, that's absolutely an accurate um, description. Uh, how did it shape the world? Well, it made the skyscraper possible. There is really no way you could realistically have a building more than... And that 10 stories, unless you have a functioning elevator, or actually more to the point, 
the real innovation is is the elevator brake because we've had elevators for hundreds and hundreds of years but nobody is going to get in an elevator uh, that's going to go any serious height unless it's safe and otis yeah that guy uh, elijah otis invented the elevator brake and he demonstrated it at one of these world's fairs uh, it was a hugely theatrical demonstration he was lifted up 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 above the crowd and standing behind him on this scaffolding you imagine the 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 drama of it there's a guy with an executioner's axe and he raises the axe as though he's about to strike off otis's head and he swings the axe down and he chops the elevator rope and everyone in the crowd screams and the elevator falls about a quarter of an inch and then Otis yells out to everybody, all safe, gentlemen, all safe. He's demonstrated that he has developed a safe way to make uh, the elevator work. And they are, in fact, incredibly safe. They make skyscrapers possible. And they're really in- enormously efficient. So the, the people who are, who are concerned about energy efficiency and they talk about double glazing, they talk about insulation, they talk about all the ways that you can uh, reduce the fuel consumption of a building. One of the, the best ways of all is an elevator because you shift a lot of people using a counterweight, pack them all into a very dense area, and you can have a, a very low environmental impact city like Manhattan, very low environmental impact, and yet still generate a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, economic output, of, of income. And it's all possible because of the elevator. Indeed. Let's talk about the barcode. Now, that doesn't seem too glamorous, but without the barcode, my goodness, Walmart, Home Depot, none of this stuff is possible, is it? Uh, no, it, it isn't. And I, I should say on the subjects of glamour, the idea of, of this book, the, the 50 inventions that, that shape the modern economy, it's not to pick the 50 most important inventions. It, it's to try to surprise people a little bit and to get them to look at everyday objects in a, in a different way. And the barcode's one of the, one of the great examples of that. So, um, so the barcode was, um, was invented several times, really. But, but the, the real inventive moment, and I'm drawing a blank on the, the um, inventor's name for a second. It may come to me. And he was, um, he was sitting at the beach, he was visiting his uh, grandparents, and he was thinking of the time he'd spent as a Boy Scout communicating in Morse code. And he'd been trying to figure out this problem, how do I create an automated till? And um, he dragged his fingers in a lazy circle through the sand. And then he looked down and he, he saw he'd created a kind of um, bullseye with his fingers, the ridges and the troughs. And he realized he could use those ridges and troughs to uh, convey a code, Morse code. And so the original barcodes were in fact bullseyes. The idea of the bullseye is, well, you can scan it in, in any direction. It doesn't make any, uh, any difference. It's always the same. Um, in the end, of course, the modern barcode is linear. Uh, and it took several decades to get the computers cheap enough and the lasers cheap enough to make it uh, a practical technology. But once it was there, well, actually, I should say before it was there, there was a huge debate in the retail industry. You had the big retailers, you had the food manufacturers, and everybody was arguing rooms full of lawyers over the barcode. And they were arguing for a good reason, because they knew that 
the exact design of the barcode, how it was put together, who had to pay for the infrastructure. These things were going to make a big difference. They were going to advantage some retailers. They were going to disadvantage others. So there were these huge fights. Uh, and of course, the the retailers didn't want to put the, the barcode scanners in until the food manufacturers had barcodes on their products. And the food manufacturers didn't want to bother putting barcodes on their products until the scanners existed to read them. So there was this all this kind of you go first thing. I mean, um, Miller, I think, had been printing their labels on their beer bottles using the same technology for about six, 60 or 70 years. So the idea that you're going to retool in order to print these crazy barcodes, not very attractive. But in the end, it was it was done. And as you say, it empowered Walmart and the, the real big box retailers because it solved a problem that they had about keeping track of stock, about keeping the staff on the, the checkout, keeping them honest. So they didn't put money in their own pocket. Everything was scanned through. It solved a problem they had and that the, the mom and pop shops didn't have because they, they knew what was on the shelves and what was running low. They weren't going to steal from themselves. So it really tilted the playing field in favor of, of, the, of the big players. And Walmart in particular, I think people underestimate how important Walmart was in integrating the American economy with the Chinese economy. They made a huge contribution there, whether you like it or not, um, to introducing these very, very cheap goods. And they couldn't have done it without the barcode. And by the way, that young man was Joseph Woodland, and he was a graduate student at the Drexel Institute in Philadelphia. He was the one pondering that, that problem on a beach he was indeed. And the other story about Woodland is he, he also designed a, a device to play Muzak in elevators. And his father advised him not to go down that path because he said, oh, the elevator business is dominated by the mafia. I've got no idea if this is true, but that's what he was told. The elevator business is dominated by the ma mafia. You don't want to go in there with your Muzak machine. Invent something else. And he invented the barcode. And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear more of this remarkable book. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and up next, a story about a girl whose life, at the age of 10, changed in ways that she could never have imagined. Madison Acey, now a senior at Ole Miss, here in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast, and that's about an hour south of Memphis. Well, she's living proof that through faith and through perseverance, can overcome the obstacles that life throws at you. Here's Madison with her story. I grew up in a very small Mississippi Delta town. We had a population of 5,000 people. I had a pretty normal life, like when I was really young. I went to a very small private Christian school, and we were all very close because there was so, so little of us in the town. And 
that made things kind of easier because when I was 10 years old, my life kind of started becoming really unordinary. I was at my best friend's house at the time, and like most kids in the Delta, we were outside playing in the fields, and we had been cleaning her dad's barn all day, and then we decided that we wanted to go play on the tractor that had been sitting there for a few years, and we went over to it, and we started playing on it, and I had on rubber boots, and they got caught in the railing on the top of the tractor. So when I started to fall, I caught myself on a live power line that was hanging on the side of the road, and it then electrocuted me with 10,000 volts of electricity. The electricity exited from my hip and my back and then shot out of my hands, and it completely killed my right arm and then my left hand. And my friend sat there and watched the whole thing. She was only 10 years old, too, so it was very hard for her to witness. So her mom then called the ambulance and took them a while to get there, but it also took them a while to get my hands off the power line because I was knocked unconscious. So the farmhands came over and finally got me down. If I wouldn't have been wearing the rubber rain boots, I would not have been grounded. The electricity would have exploded out of my feet and my arms and back, and that would have killed me. So ultimately, the rain boots are what saved my life. The ambulance finally arrived, and I remember waking up, but all I could see was clouds and a blue sky, and looking around and seeing everybody, and I remember hearing everybody screaming and freaking out and crying, and so that confused me because I had no idea what had happened, and they wrapped me up in what looked like tinfoil. And then it was like a light switch went out. And I remember waking up a month later. I was airlifted from Dundee, Mississippi to Le Bonheur in Memphis, where they instantly amputated my right arm. And then the next morning I was flown to Cincinnati, Ohio, and they tried to save my left hand and it just kept making it worse and it was almost going to kill me so we had to amputate it at a little bit below the elbow. I was having surgery every single day, twice a day. And then after almost a month and a half, I finally was good enough to where I could go home. I was in pressure garments to keep my wounds sealed. So it was like a skin tight outfit that was from my knees up to my neck that I had to wear all day, every day. Then, as soon as I got home from the hospital, I had letters and stuff people had written me in my floor. So I slowly found a way to get onto the ground, and I started trying to crawl. And since my balance was so weak, I face-planted onto the floor. Being so young, it just was really scary because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to do anything again. Then I broke my leg, jumped on the bed, and it snapped. That was because when the electricity exited my hip, it had caused a hairline fracture in my femur that was just waiting to break, and all it needed was a little push. So I was then in a wheelchair for eight weeks and still had to go back to school. When my friends first saw me, some of them were were excited to see me because they were happy that I was alive, but they were 
also scared at the same time because we were so young and we had never experienced anything like that. It was just really different. My friends adjusting to being around me. And they also had to figure out what I needed help with and like when was the right time to ask me for help. Honestly, that was my motivation to learn stuff so well when I was younger because I didn't want my friends to not want to be around me because they were going to have to do this and this and this for me just over and over. When you're a 12-year-old little kid, that's annoying. You just want to be a kid. You don't want to sit there and help your friend do everything. So it kind of just taught me to learn to do stuff for myself. For almost a year after my accident, I literally could do nothing for myself. I literally had to get help with everything, my hair, brushing my teeth, changing clothes, eating, showering, everything. Slowly after that, I was just like, I'm going to have to figure it out because I can't sit like this for the rest of my life, having my mom help me with everything. At first, it was obviously very difficult, relearning everything and trying to figure out life again at such a young age. But slowly, things just started falling into place. When I first had my accident, obviously our big mission was to find prosthetics for me so I could start learning to use them. And we ended up getting two prosthetics. It was one arm, and then I had a hand that looked very realistic. But the thing is, we got them, took them home, everything, and then we had to find the process of paying for them. And so we were trying to go through insurance, and they denied us and said that hands were not medically necessary. So then things started getting really difficult. We were scared that they were going to take them away from us, but we ended up finding a way to pay for them. But they were very expensive, so it took a long time. By the time I had finally gotten to where I could have the prosthetics and found some I liked and were I, I was comfortable with, I had already learned to do just about every single thing. So it was way harder to try to relearn with prosthetics because then it was like starting back at square one. So I do still have prosthetics. I have a right arm and a left hand and they are currently in the bottom of my closet and they have been for the past three and a half years. Another reason I really don't use them is because they're extremely heavy and it's not a very comfortable feeling. My arm is really squished in there and will lose circulation and fall asleep. And on my right side, it's a full two-foot arm hanging off my shoulder made of metal. And so it's really heavy. My shoulder starts cramping. Most of my friends will tell you it's just weird seeing me with them on. One time, my friend and I were at my house, and she wanted to see me with my prosthetics on. So I surprised her and walked out with them on, and it put tears in her eyes because she had never seen me with arms before. And so it's just a completely different person you're seeing. I just wasn't supposed to have arms, and so all my friends know that. So I just don't ever wear prosthetics. And you're listening to Madison AC tell her story. And oh my goodness. What a thing to happen at the age of 10. And to wake up a month later and really understand the gravity of that and how you're going to live the rest of your life without arms. And then to listen to her voice. Well, you knew, well, and you're going to know soon that she made it through. But my goodness, put yourself in her shoes. And always we like to do these things and tell these stories because the, the obstacles Americans overcome each and every day, that humans overcome their own perseverance and grit is just remarkable. My goodness, that she said at a certain point at this young age, I'm going to have to figure these things out for myself. I don't want my mom doing everything for me. 
And my goodness, to hear from an insurance company, hands aren't medically necessary. Well, how absurd. But in the end, Madison agreed. Here's Madison to continue with her story. It became a completely different household. Mom had to give me so much attention, helping me that my younger brother would feel left out. But he was really young at the time, so he was always worried. He was like, is this here going to die? He was just so scared that I wasn't going to be there the next day because it started to feel less like a home, but more like a at-home hospital. So it kind of got difficult for a while, but they brought me this little band that usually goes on people with arthritis that can't use their fingers, and it happened to fit the end of my arm perfectly. You could insert like a pen, a pencil, a fork, makeup brushes, my toothbrush. That's how I do everything almost, is my cuff. Driving was one of the scariest things to learn how to do, obviously, but it was never really a difficult thing to do. I've always thought it's because that's the one thing I did not know how to do before I lost my hands. So learning to drive with half an arm was the only way I knew. So I just went on doing high school. I played basketball. I was a cheerleader. I did track. I did all kinds of things. I traveled. And being an amputee gave me opportunities to go to the Bethany Hamilton retreat in California every year starting in eighth grade. It's a retreat for amputees that we all get to get together and just bond on our what we have in common. <laughs> Going to the Bethany Hamilton retreat has been the greatest experience of my life. That is why I'm honestly so grateful to be an amputee. Every single girl that comes in is completely unique, has a completely different story. A lot of kids were born without limbs. Some come in have had accidents. One of my best friends that I met there, she lost her hand when she was three years old. She put it in a meat grinder, three years old. So it's just not, it's just awesome to hear all these crazy stories. And like, we can all just sit back and laugh about it because we've all been through stuff like that. It was always interesting meeting new amputees and seeing how they did things and how you would assume that we would be all more comfortable around each other. But sometimes I'm more comfortable around my friends with arms and all their limbs because it's not as intimidating, as crazy as that sounds. When you're in a room full of girls that are every single one of them are an amputee and you're seeing how different everybody does everything. It just kind of overwhelms you and you're like, well, am I doing this wrong? Am I doing this wrong? Should I be doing it like this? This one girl has one hand so she can do a ponytail. Makes me so mad. I'm like, I just need two fingers. I just need two fingers. And so when you leave the room, you try to go do all these things in ways you saw these other girls doing them. And it frustrates you because you're feeling like you're having to go from step one even though I love all of my amputee friends, I wouldn't trade them for the world. It does get overwhelming, like feeling like you're doing things wrong because you're not doing them the same way they are. But then when I'm the only amputee, I feel like I'm doing everything the way I'm supposed to be doing it because that's my natural way of doing it versus their natural way of doing it. Bethany has way more people that look at her than we do on average. And 
So she just gives good advice on how to not let the negative people affect you and just to keep putting your faith in God because he's done this to us for a purpose. I remember sitting in the hospital with my mom and one night her Bible fell off of her bed and it turned to Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It's plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and to give you a future. And it's just literally what has gotten me through everything because God has a plan for me. He knows what he's done with my life. He doesn't make mistakes. This is his purpose for me. And his purpose was to prove to others God is going to bring you through it. He doesn't do this to punish you, but to prove to you and to prove to others that everything has a purpose in life. You'll figure it out eventually. One of the scariest things after my accident that I always thought about was, oh my gosh, I'm never going to have a boyfriend. Like that was like the biggest fear of mine was I'm never going to have someone love me. I'm never going to get married and all that stuff. And thinking about, am I going to be able to take care of my kids? That's always been something that's been scary because obviously I have not experienced that yet. And it's just scary to think that what if, I'm stuck being a mom and I can't take care of my child. And I know that I'm not even a mom yet. That's like a mom's biggest fear. And simply like wanting to go get a manicure, wanting to wear cute rings and stuff. It sounds lame, but that's stuff girls love to do and I don't get to do that. Obviously at times I'm like, this is awful. It's hard to explain because of the mindset that I've created for myself. I don't get upset because if I would have had my accident, my life would be completely different than it is now. I would not have the friends I have. Nothing in my life would have been the same. And so it's hard to be upset when looking at it like that. When I got to college is when I first started to really have to do things on my own completely. And there was a few things that I just really did not know how to do by myself. Well, I didn't think I knew how to do for myself. The first thing was learning to brush my hair. I had never done that before and I figured out how to do it. And one day I was going somewhere and of course the shoes I wanted to wear, the laces were untied. So I just figured out how to do it. I just had to use my mouth and tie my shoes. And there's just so many things I really did not think I was going to be able to do. And as time got went on and I was forced to learn how to do them myself, it became easier and easier. And now on, I do it all by myself. When I'm in class, I write my notes just like every other student does. I can load my backpack up just as fast as every other student. I'm usually the first person out of the room. During school, I don't feel any different than anybody else. After I graduate college in the spring, I'm going to attend an online school to get my interior design license and become hopefully an interior designer. That is my goal. And I would like to remodel houses for a living one day. That's my favorite thing to do, but it's also a job that I can physically do because most of this stuff is done on a computer and I can work a computer. So it just makes it really easy for me to physically be able to have an interior design job. There's no, almost no job that I can do right now at this age without a degree. So it's very upsetting when you're told that hands aren't necessary to live, so you don't qualify for disability. When there are people that get it for just any excuse and they, it, they take it and run with it, people 
nowadays try to do anything to make sure that they are getting handouts versus working for what they want in life. I would love more than anything to be able to go out and work. I don't like sitting at home being lazy. I can't stand it. My brother's always like, well, go be a cashier. And I'm always like, well, you want me to spit your change back at you? <laughs> There's things that people just assume that I could do and they just don't think about like how would I actually do it. Those people take for granted what they have in life and they don't appreciate what they do have. Something I always say is life isn't about what you've lost, it's about what you have. That's just what I try to keep in mind and help people understand is you've got to get up and move on with your life because you were given this life for a purpose and not to waste it. I've ended up having really a pretty normal, extremely normal life, just physically look different than everybody else. I've been very fortunate to find people that could care less. And all my friends tell me all the time, they completely forget that I don't have hands. And it's really refreshing to hear. Even though my life has not turned out anything like I would have expected, I literally would not trade my life for the world. I feel that I was handpicked by God to be an amputee and to show others that you can do anything you put your mind to. And that's the main thing that I've learned is if you want something, you can achieve it no matter your circumstances. I just am very thankful to be an amputee because it helps me stand out in ways that others may not and be on a platform to inspire others to achieve the goals they want throughout their life. And thanks to our own Madison, Madison Martin, for bringing us the story of Madison Acey, who also happens to be, well, our Madison's friend. And what a story, and what a story we can all learn from. I mean, that she formulated the sentence, I am grateful to be an amputee, is really remarkable. Uh, Don't let negative people affect you, she said. And she also pointed out that her faith in God, as she put it, it got me through everything. And by the way, is that a theme we hear on this show regularly from people who suffer great adversity? And we don't go looking for that answer, folks. But we don't edit it out when it is. I think that's the difference between us and so many other storytellers out there. And moreover, when she said these words, well, I, I just started crying. The scariest thing she said, the biggest fear I have is that nobody will ever love me. And will I be able to take care of my kids? And my goodness... Yes and yes to both of those things, Madison. Madison AC's story, a story of courage, of grit, of resilience, of faith, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Today we bring you the story of Joshua Texador, and it all starts not far from my hometown, and not 
far from Robbie's hometown, too, a town called Passaic, New Jersey. I come from a single-parent household. My mom had me <laughs> when she was in high school. Uh, you know, low-middle-class um, lifestyle. You know, my mom, I appreciate her very much. I think it was awesome that she decided not to be a statistic. And I know for her it was really hard, and we've spoken about it before, where um, when she decided to have me at, at the young age of 17, that, um, you know, that, you know, pretty much people were telling her that her life was over and she was never going to make it. And uh, last year, she just finished getting her master's degree in education. She teaches uh, elementary school now, and that's like her dream job, so. But as far as growing up, you know, my mom and I, it was just us until I was eight, and then that's when my stepfather came into the picture. But for the most part, you know, it was me and my mom pretty much through everything and uh, you know she was determined to get us out of the low-income area that we were in you know working two three jobs and really grinding it out uh, she got us out of that position and you know we were able to move to a, the next town over which is more of a more of like a suburb I mean things just went well from there definitely different going from one type of lifestyle to another type of lifestyle because it was just me and my mom and my entire family is in the next town over so being the only child at that point um, I had to grow up fast uh, just trying to help my mom out with stuff so I always had chores I needed to do I was um, I was always I didn't want to ever disappoint her she needed to do what she needed to do at that time to make sure that we were able to move on with life and and prosper and not you know, not so much as have us stay stuck in our circumstances, which um, a lot of people end up doing, and they just take it on the chin, and they just keep it moving. So that's pretty much my upbringing in my childhood. I definitely took a lot of pride in it. Um, I think I definitely had a, a strong understanding, even as a kid, that like, hey, like, you know, you need to be a hard worker. And I think that's where I definitely get my, my work ethic from. Um, I mean, man, my mom was all over the place working. And even on the weekends, uh, my mom did hair. And uh, my aunt, uh, God rest her soul, she owned the beauty parlor. My mom worked on the, at the beauty parlor on the weekends. I used to spend weekend after upon weekends at the beauty parlor with my mom all day. And... You know, I mean, she'd be tired, but I mean, I, I understood that she 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 needed to make things happen. And she knew in herself that um, nobody was going to give her anything. Um, she knew that, you know, things weren't going to come easy, but uh, she was determined to definitely change our uh, our circumstances. And, you know, she she's one of those people who she just wanted to she wanted more. She always wanted more. And I'm sure people thought that she was selfish or that she thought that she was better than other people. But I don't, I never saw it like that. I mean, if you want more out of life, I think you need to go out and actually do something. Like, you know, you have to actually go out and make it happen and not so much as sit back and hopefully things change. You know, she had, she had her own place. She had her own car. She was taking care of me. 
I mean, I always had like the freshest clothes. You know, I always had the newest sneakers. Uh, when Nordica was real big, I had a Nordica jacket. I mean, I've could I've had every toy you can possibly think of. Um, at one point, I had the PlayStation and an N64 at the same time, which I was like one of the only people I knew who had both. I know a bunch of people, you either had one or the other, and I had both. And maybe that's, maybe that, maybe I'm spoiled for that. But, um, you know, my mom always was the person who was like, hey, if I work hard for something and I want to, and I want to do something with my hard work, then I, we can have whatever we want um, if we're doing things the right way. So, I mean, I... I can't say enough how much uh, gratitude I have for her and uh, getting us through those early years of uh, a life. Uh, it was hard for me because like my entire family is from Passaic, New Jersey. Like my mom's side and my dad's side, everybody is from Passaic, New Jersey. So, you know, I have pretty much cousins upon cousins and aunts and uncles. And everybody, you know, Passaic is not the biggest place in the world. So anytime you wanted to see somebody or hang out with somebody, you know, anybody and everybody was anywhere within five to 10 minutes away. And to go from that to moving in the next town over and to not have anybody was hard for me. And especially when it's literally just my mom and I, and then I'm in a new environment. And I mean, and at that time, uh, Passaic was all black and all uh, Spanish and Clifton was a predominantly white town. So when we moved to Clifton, I was, uh, how old? Uh, we moved to Clifton, I think I was six years old. Yeah, because I had first grade, yeah. So I was six years old when we moved to Clifton and I was in an elementary school. I was like one of the only black kids in the entire school. And you're listening to Joshua Texador. My goodness, what testimony about his mom. She worked, she worked, and she worked some more. And he had a strong understanding of what it took to be a hard worker from her. She spent weekend after weekend at that beauty parlor. And she was determined, he said, to change our circumstance. And so many moms are. These single moms, the work they do, how valiant they are, it's remarkable. There was a man involved, a, a stepfather, but you could tell it was mom. It was mom. When we come back, Joshua in Clifton, New Jersey, going from a mostly minority town, Passaic, and a city to the suburbs, mostly white, of Clifton, New Jersey. More of Joshua Texador's story here on Our American Stories. back with our American stories and the story of Joshua Texador. When we last left off, he and his mother had just moved from the lower class town of Passaic, New Jersey, a city more than a town, to the middle class suburb of Clifton. Here's Joshua. 
it was it was just weird and it was different. Um, it was real hard for me to watch how a lot of the kids had mom and dad, and then I only had mom. And at the same time, you know, mom wasn't always there. And you know, and sometimes like my mom would be working and she couldn't even pick me up from school. And I've had to have like family friends pick me up or a, a, a family member have to pick me up from school because you know she was out doing what she needed to do so that you know we had we had so I mean like seeing all of that and I and I could see where like a lot of kids go through stuff like that and it could really like affect them but like I took I took pride in that I was like man look my mom's out there like she's I know my mom's working I know my mom's keeping the lights on I know my mom's keeping the roof over my head I know my mom's putting food on the table so like me being me to take care of my end I, my grades were always spot on. I never wanted to disappoint her with my grades and anything that she needed done in the house. Um, you know, it was get home, eat, homework, and then chores. And by that time she was in the house and I didn't never want her to come home and stuff wasn't done. So that was, that's what it was like growing up like that. For, <laughs> she would say like, you know, if she has to go out and work all day, um, she, all she needed me to do was cover my end. You know, and she's like, you know, having good grades shouldn't be hard. Like, you should want to have good grades. And then in the house, you know, if I'm at work all day, I shouldn't have to come home and also have to take care of this if you're already home and you can help me out. So I was always just trying to be like, you know, lend an extra hand, but that extra hand, like, I was supposed to be doing that. <laughs> like, I didn't really have an option. I never really um, experienced like uh, discrimination but it was, it was like polar opposites for me because it's like on one end, everybody looks like me, everybody acts like me, and then you go to another environment and it's like the complete opposite. So, I mean, I know people don't like the, the term code switch. Code switching, I think it's just a term, but like you're not gonna talk to your friends like the way you talk to your grandparents. So you would have to code switch. At an early age, I learned how to blend in with pretty much any and everybody. So I mean, I think that's definitely worked as a positive for me in life, and even as an adult now, like I can literally get along with everybody because I've I grew up with everybody and every type of demographic and religion and people with different backgrounds, and I that's I I think that's definitely helped me grow as a person. I started playing football, I think I was nine years old, and I only played basketball. I wasn't interested in playing football, like, at all. And then uh, when I was eight years old, my stepfather came into the picture, and he was like, yeah, man, like, you know, you should play football. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. And I didn't really even know, like, the rules or anything. I just knew that football existed. And uh, I didn't want to hit. I, I did not want to hit at all. I didn't want to be hit. I didn't want to be touched. I just wanted the glory. I just wanted to score touchdowns and be like the cool kid on the team. And, but like, it was a big, it, I loved football because it was a release for me. And, you know, uh, I think a lot of stuff going on at that time, you know, in, in life, it was like, man, I get to like really go out there and, and be a part of something. And I could go out there and release my frustrations and have a controlled, like have controlled anger and, I mean, ever since then, man, my love for football, is, I mean, I still love football today. Um, I miss playing football. I don't think I will ever, not ever miss playing football. 
But um, I mean, football has done a, a lot for me, especially when it comes to relationships and especially when it comes to um, uh, hard work and longevity and trying to uh, just be better. I went to Seton Hall Prep for high school and I felt like I wasn't getting my, my due. I 100% feel like if it wasn't for me going to Seton Hall Prep, I would have never uh, had a chip on my shoulder. I had a huge chip on my shoulder because I just knew. I knew I was better than guys on the team. I broke my finger my freshman year, so I, uh, that really didn't work out for me. And then my sophomore year, um, I had a great sophomore year. Uh, you know, we were undefeated on the sophomore team and on the JV team, and I was a captain on both teams. So I'm thinking, hey, we're going to junior year. Things are going to work out. We're going to, you know, we're about to do our thing. And same thing. Hey, man, let's go out and let's win the state championship. But then my junior year came, and um, the coaching staff just felt like I wasn't good enough to be on the JV team. So I'm like, you know, what's going on right now? Like, why? Like, I mean, I was a standout player last year. Why would I not be a standout player this year? And, you know, it got to the point where I'm a junior and they wanted me to practice with the sophomore team. I wasn't even allowed to practice with the JV team. And, I mean, I, you want to talk about being pissed off and really wanting to get after it. I mean, I had a few practices where me and the coaching staff got into it because I'm like, this is complete BS. I don't know why why we're doing this. And, um, you know, and then I, arguments with my stepfather at the time because I'm like, hey, man, this is going to be a waste of a year. Because I'm going to sit the bench my entire junior season. And he was like, there's no way they can sit you. Like, you all, you know, you go out there and you work hard. And sure enough, I went out and sat. I wasted my entire junior season. Um, I didn't have any numbers. I didn't really do. I don't even think I scored a touchdown my junior year. It was just that bad. That right there, I was like, you know, I just got to make something happen. And also, if I really want to succeed the way I want to succeed, I need to be in an environment where I can succeed. And I mean, going, you know, transferring to Clifton was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. So when I transferred to Clifton my senior year, the only thing on my mind was a state championship. I said, I don't care, like, who's on the team. I don't care who we have to play. Uh, I got to win a state championship so I can go back to see a whole prep and talk my, talk my mess. So, um, I, I knew going in, I knew going into it, um, coach, uh, coach Ron Anello was the coach at the time. And when I sat down and talked with him, you know, he's like, you know, we already have a team put together, which I already understood. He's like, you know, we have a team put together and you know, if you, if you know, if you want to be a part of this, you know, you have to be willing to do anything. So I literally was willing to do anything and it came to blocking, I would block. Uh, at running back, I knew both sides on running back. Uh, I played. I was at outside linebacker. I was at corner. I was the punt returner, the kick returner. Uh, you know, I, I pretty much was all over the field, and I didn't care about touchdowns, and I didn't care being about being the star of the team. I cared about winning at the end of the day. And if the and if Coach Anello told me to run through this brick wall so we could win, I would run as hard as I could through a brick wall so that we could win. When I transferred to Clifton, um, we were predicted to lose every single game of the season. We were predicted to lose every single game of the season. And, like, that motivated me. Like, I, I'm one of the people, I read the articles. I want to see what people have to say. And it's not so much so I can fire back, but that, 
that 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 stuff fueled me and me not getting any playing time or looks at seeing her prep fueled me and pretty much I got to a point where I was like I don't really care nobody can tell me anything like we're gonna go out and win the state championship and sure enough we actually end up winning the state championship in New Jersey after graduating uh, I actually considered, really considered going to King University in Union because the coach there is, is a Clifton guy and my best friend in high school and our starting quarterback, they had already committed to Keene. And I was also one of the players who got a look to go to Keene. Um, but I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get out of New Jersey. I wanted to experience something new. I went to Hampton University. Uh, that's in Hampton, Virginia. It's a HBCU uh, down in Hampton. I mean, I literally had the time of my life. <laughs> I literally had the time of my life at Hampton. I had way too much. <laughs> I had way too much fun. And you're listening to Joshua Texador. I had way too much fun. Don't you wish more people said that? And I'm sure he had hardship along the way. But his attitude, his gratitude, infectious, folks, infectious. When we come back, more of Joshua Texador's story here on Our American Stories. with Our American Stories and with Joshua Texador's story, we return now to his college years. Uh, I think my, my biggest curve was I, what messed me up was uh, I didn't have any study habits. I didn't have any study habits. I didn't really do any reading. So where I did have fun because it's college, I really wasn't mentally equipped or mature enough to actually go through college and handle it. I wasn't happy. More than anything, I, I, like, I hated it. I, I got to the point where I was like, ah, like, the fun's over, like, I don't really know why I'm here anymore. You know, um, the, I think the, the biggest turning point for me, wanting to be an educator, was uh, one time I, I was home, and my stepfather, he was looking at the pay scale and he's like, hey man, look, come over here. And he's like, look, this is the pay scale. So I'm looking at the pay scale, and I think the highest number I saw was 160,000. And I'm just like, you know, like, that's, 
that's it. Like you make like when you make it to 160 grand and and that's it. Like it's over after that. And you know, and like I said, and, you know, you don't have the tools, you don't have the supplies. You know, you have uh, I was in New Jersey. You definitely have uh, crowded schools. You have crowded classrooms. And I'm like, you know, I don't I don't want 32 kids, 36 kids per class. And then I have to worry about getting tenured. I have, you know, I have to worry about getting laid off. And it was like, I started putting the pieces together and I'm like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to do this at all. And I got to a point in life where I was like, look, I can't not do anything. So if I'm not going to be in school, what am I going to do? And from then, that's when I decided to go into the army. It was, it was really hard. Um, I definitely got yelled at and screamed at. Um, it was not, it wasn't the, it wasn't what my, what my parents saw what was best for me to do. You know, um, I was always raised that, hey, if you, if you work hard and you go to college, everything will work out. And you know, you start getting to a point in life, you're like, that's, that's not true. You know, there's people right now with master's degrees, doctorate degrees, they're living paycheck to paycheck. Like, I, I don't want to be like that. Like, I, I have to be doing, I have to be doing something else. So I tried to explain that. And I guess at my, at, you know, being 20 years old and trying to tell my parents, like, hey, this is not what I want to do. I want to do something else. It, I mean, it didn't go well at all. And I got to the point where I was like, I don't even care anymore. I was like, I'm wasting your time. I'm wasting my time. We're wasting this money because I'm not going to do I'm, I'm I don't want to be here. I'm not going to go to class. And I actually I literally told them, I was like, I stopped going to class because there's no point in me being here. Like I about to just come back home, hit the reset button, go to the army and figure things out. I left my junior year of college um, to go into the army. I I really my dream job was to be an army ranger. I wanted to be an army ranger more than anything. And my mom was like hell bent on making sure that I was not an army ranger and she was like look just go into the national guard and you know we can go back to school and we can figure it out and I think that's I don't think that she didn't want me to become an army ranger I think that she was just protecting me um you know just being a mom I mean I mean army rangers is pretty much like special forces type stuff and you know I guess she didn't I guess she didn't want that for me and she didn't see that for me even though I saw it for myself but because of you know my upbringing, I don't want to let my mom down. I decided to go into the National Guard with the thought process that hey, I'll go into the National Guard, have them pay for college, and we'll go from there. And unfortunately, that that didn't happen. I didn't know what I, at that point I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I was 21. I was trying to figure it out, and I had no like you know I didn't really have any guidance. Nobody was saying like you know what are you doing? What do you plan on doing? So I was just out there for a while, not really doing much of anything and just working. And, you know, and then now I have to deal with life because mom and dad aren't in the picture to shield me from everything. And now I'm just taking on life. Working every day, paying my own bills. And I didn't feel equipped enough to be an adult. So I'm pretty much like payday. You know, we're going out, we're having a good time. Um, I didn't have a savings account. 
Uh, I didn't know anything about budgeting. I didn't know anything. I didn't like. I barely knew anything about like having a credit score. I didn't have a credit card. Nobody taught me anything. I was always taught that you don't want to have a credit card, so I never had a credit card. And like I, you know, I pretty much knew how to survive with like twenty dollars to my name until that next paycheck. But like I would get paid, and pretty much I would blow through my check pretty much that weekend and be broke for the next two weeks. So uh, that was, I mean, it was a learning curve. And I think I had to go through that to get to where I'm at now. Just like being like broke, broke. Being like, like dead broke. And, um, and definitely um, I had an alcohol dependency and, and that was bad in itself. And, you know, there'd be times I wouldn't have a dime in my name, but then I would always have alcohol to take care of me. I didn't have no money. But if, as long as I had a bottle, I was good to go. And like that became a cycle. And then I was like, man, like I really need to get it together. But you know, by that time in life, I had already not done anything for so long. Now I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. And um, that's what I met my, well, she's my wife now. And I met my girlfriend at, at the time. And when we started uh, dating, just being around her and wanting to do better, then like life started coming around and then I was like, hey, I gotta really figure things out. And then the environment that I was in wasn't conducive to me being like a better person and being like the best version of myself. So, you know, a lot of the times I, you know, I would call her and be like, hey, can you come pick me up? And she would pick me up and then I would just stay with her for the weekend and then I would sober up. And then like, you know, and then I'm like, ah, man, I feel good, but then, I would have to go back home. So I'm going back, right back in to the same environment that I was in. And it, I mean, it sucked for me because the house I was living in, on both, at both corners, there's a liquor store. And I grew up in the area, so I know everybody. So the liquor stores used to take care of me and I used to take care of them. And it all, like, it was just a cycle. I was stuck in a cycle and I couldn't get out the cycle. And I knew that if I had continued on that journey that I was going on, that I was gonna end up somewhere. I don't know where I was gonna end up, but I was gonna end up somewhere. My wife ended up getting a job down in, in Nashville, Tennessee. I told her, I said, hey, when I come down there, we like, it's a fresh, fresh, fresh start. Like, I can't mess this up. And I felt like God was giving me a window to say, hey, I'm gonna give you this window. You gotta go through the window. I'm not gonna force you, but you gotta make this happen. And I mean, ever since we've come to Nashville, like I pr pretty much flipped the switch and have done like a complete 180 and, um, you know, turned my entire life around. And you're listening to Joshua Texador and what a story he's telling. And it's straight as an arrow. There's no aggrandizement here or puffery. And my goodness, he had a good time in college until he didn't. As he put it, he just wasn't mentally equipped to handle it at the time. Then it was the army or not. He started to drink. He was drifting. And the environment, as he put it, wasn't conducive to me being the best part of myself. And so much of what happens does has to do with that environment and it not being conducive to us being the best parts of ourselves. When we come back, we learn more about what happens next a new opportunity, a woman, a new city. Joshua opens that door and walks into it. When we come back more 
of Joshua Texador's story here on Our American Stories. conclusion of Joshua Texador's story after facing his alcohol dependency head-on and realizing he needed to get his life together. Joshua decided he'd move from New Jersey to Nashville. And I know that feeling. I moved from New Jersey here to Oxford, Mississippi. And by the way, that's where his girlfriend had just gotten a job and he was ready to get married and, well, start a life. Here's Joshua. So while I was in New Jersey, I started doing job vacations so that when I got to Nashville, I already had a head start. So, um, and I also told her, like I made a vow to her. I said, I would, I said, yeah, once I get to Nashville, there's no more drinking. Like that's it. I'm not going to have another drink at all. <laughs> the day I was supposed to get on the plane to come to Nashville, I was like, yeah, man, it's the last day in New Jersey. Like, I had sold all my stuff. I was uh, coaching football at Clifton High School. I was giving my stuff away to the, to the players. I was ready to go, but I was just like, look, man, it's my last day. I'm gonna get as messed up as possible, and then boom, I'll be in Nashville. And then, like, that never happened because, like, I didn't drink. I had maybe had, like, two or three sips, and I said, man, you don't need it. I poured my cup out. I put the bottle in the freezer. And I went to sleep. And the next morning I got up and I got on the plane. And I mean, I've been in Nashville ever since. You know, it was, and oh man, especially having a dependency. And I think a lot of people who, who have had an addiction issue can definitely relate to withdrawal might be the worst feeling ever. Alcohol withdrawal is is, is, is something I never, ever, ever want to have to go through ever again. And like, I mean, I couldn't eat anything. I couldn't, like, all I could drink was water. I was eating soup. I couldn't eat like any solid foods because it was coming right back up. Um, the cold sweats at night, like I'd be laying in the bed with cat. I'd be rolled up in a blanket. I was sleeping in the sweatshirt and sweatpants and socks. And I'm in the bed shivering pouring with sweat, um, walking around the house because I can't fall asleep. And that went on for like two months of me just like basically going through like a detox. And I mean, I, I'm proud of myself for getting through it, but going through that right there was enough for me to be like, man, I am never, ever, ever, ever going through this shit again. <laughs> I had no big account. I had two hundred dollars in cash, no car, uh, no insurance. No, like I didn't. You know, when I said like nothing, nothing. I, you know, I had the clothes on my back. I had like one suitcase, 
you know, um, I, they had to take my stuff out of my backpack because I had packed it so much as a carry-on. <laughs> that was embarrassing. But I basically put everything on my shoulders. I took accountability for all my BS. And I said, look, I'm never going to be a failure again. I'm never going to be broke again. I'm like, I'm going to be dependable. I'm going to be there for people. I'm not going to be... Um, I'm not gonna be like an anchor on people's lives. Like I'm gonna be the best person I could possibly be. And I actually tried to get into stocks in high school. And I was told you can't get into stocks because you'll lose all your money. So even before I could even dip my toes in the water to experience what stocks was like, somebody who I trusted told me not to do it. So because they told me not to do it, I never pursued it, even though it, it, it was something that had always, always caught my attention. So now I had gotten to a point where I don't really care about what anybody has to say, and I don't really care how about anybody feels because I need to make me happy. So when that started, man, I, I, I pretty much kicked the door open, and I'm sitting here like, I wish if I had been exposed to this at an early age, I don't think I would have went to school to be a teacher. I probably would have went to school to be an accountant or to be in some type of finance uh, department. Cause I mean, I love working with numbers. I love reading up on companies and what they're doing and looking at ways to generate income. And for me, it's like, look, nobody taught me any of this. I literally spent every single day, um, every single day of last year was dedicated to making money and to generating money that I didn't have to work for and learning how to generate money without me actually having to go to work. So when that started, man, you know, people, you know, and people are looking at me different. They're like, man, this is all you ever want to talk about. This is all you ever, you know, did you watch the game last night? I'm like, no, I didn't watch the game last night. Like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't, <laughs> I really don't care about watching the game. Hey man, did you hear about what Coca-Cola is doing? Did you hear about what Starbucks is doing? You know, and I might as well be talking in a different language because nobody wants to talk about that stuff. You know, everybody wants to stay inside their comfort zone. Everybody wants to feel warm inside and that's nice. And I'm, 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 I'm a go-getter. I gotta get after it. I can't just sit back and let life beat me up. I know way too many people in their 60s and 70s going to work because they have to go to work. Man, by the time I'm 60, I'm gonna be laid up on a beach and I'm gonna be chilling. And I'm gonna be looking at everybody who didn't listen to me. <laughs> I'm gonna be laughing. I'm 110% happy about the journey that I've had to go through to get here. If I had not experienced, you know, heartbreak, if I had not experienced failure, if I had, you know, not experienced being let down, if I hadn't let myself down, I would have never made it to where I am now, you know? So I like, I needed to go through all that stuff. I need to get, I needed life to really beat me up for me to, say, all right, life, I'm good. I could take it from here. Um, and I think that's a big thing. I think that's a huge issue that we have in general with people is life beats them up and they just shrug their shoulders and, you know, they just keep it moving. And now I'm on the point where I'm on attack mode. I'm on full-blown attack mode, you know. Um, my my daughter's not even a year yet. She's already got a college fund. And I'm, and I'm literally, I've told people about this and I'm like, hey, man, like, you know, I've watched people get screwed over student loans. And I'm like, hey, if you have a kid, start a college fund that generates income while you're sleeping so you could have a better chance at 
help using that money to pay for college. And people look at me like I got like five heads or something. And I'm like, no, this is literally what like, this is what people do. You know, like my first day of really getting back into investing, I literally Googled. The, the thing I Googled, I, I will never forget this. The thing I Googled when I really first started, started getting into this, I said, what do rich people do? And when, you know, and it's it's Google. They, tell you, they literally give you all the answers. I have, and now like I have a whole bunch of books. I've read six books this year about, um, you know, uh, self-improvement and about finance, you know, and um, and then I, I banned, last year I banned myself from watching football because my goal, one of my goals in life is to go to the Super Bowl. And I told myself, you're, you're not allowed to watch football until we go to the Super Bowl. So I've already, I've already went a year without watching football so that I keep myself focused on going to the Super Bowl. And you know, people are like, man, well, you could just go to a game. I don't want to go to a game. I'm not going to care about any regular season game if I can go to the Super Bowl at the end of the year. So what does it matter? And people don't look at it like that. People, they just, they just happy with what they have. And I, I'm looking forward to what I'm going to have from all the hard work. So when it's all said and done, more than anything, I want financial freedom. And if anybody doesn't know what financial freedom is, it's when you have enough income coming in where you can just pretty much do whatever you want to do. Like, you know, you don't, you don't owe anybody anything. You don't have any debt. Um, everything's paid for. You know, I want to, I want to live a type of life where if, if I want to, if I want to tell my wife, hey, let's go to Europe, and we could just pack up and go to Europe. Like I want to live like that. Now, people for some reason have issues with that. I don't know why. Like, who doesn't? Who would not want to live like that? You know, I've had. I've even told people. I said, look, if I have to work as hard as I, if I, if you told me right now that if I worked as hard as I possibly can, like I'm 30 years old, if I worked as hard as I possibly can right now for 20 years and for the next and for the next 50, I can live however I wanted to live. Best believe I will get up with a smile on my face every single day. Kill it, kill it every single day for the next 20 years. And from 50 until I'm 100, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I, I would do that. But some people, they just get comfortable. You know, everybody gets comfortable in their circumstances. They're happy where they are. And I can't, I, I mean, if you're happy where you are, I'm happy for you. But don't think that. I'm going to start what I'm doing because, because it makes you uncomfortable. I, I, I can't control your circumstances. I just know that I'm trying to build a legacy for mines. I want the Texador name to mean something. I want people to, to say, oh, man, yeah, they, he, you know, they want, that's the Texador. Yeah, that's the Texador family. I want that for, I want that for me. I want, I want more, just like how my mom wanted more. And so since my mom took us from point A to point B, I feel like it's up to me to take us from point B to point C. And then I tell my kids, ah, right, you gotta take us from point C to point D and so far and so forth. And what a voice, what a story. Great job on that, Robbie, a great find. And you've been listening to Joshua Texador. I want the name Texador to mean something. And my goodness. It already does to everybody here in the studio listening and to everybody out there listening too. He said, I'm 110% happy about the journey I had to get through to be here. I needed for life to really beat me up. He also said, I took accountability for all of my BS. And boy, there's plenty of BS to be passed around from family members ourselves. And if you can get to that point in your life where you can address those things, you're halfway home. 
My daughter is not a year old, and she already has a college fund. And he was beaming when he said that. I want financial freedom. I want more. Joshua Texador's story, a classic American story, if ever we've had one here on this show. Here on Our American Story. Our American Story. 